Well, that old hymn, Amazing Grace, was John Newton's personal celebration of his encounter with Christ, his encounter with grace. For half of his life, he was a famously cussing, ruthless slave trader. And then one day on a slave ship, he heard the gospel, eventually believed it, and he received God's grace. He was forgiven and he was forever thankful. We call that experience of getting God's grace conversion. It's an event. It's a thing that happens. When someone encounters Jesus and is mercifully forgiven and follows Jesus, that's called conversion. The book of Acts contains a number of conversion stories. Of course, there are those summary statements when a lot of people get saved at once and it just gives us a tally of unnamed people. But then there are some personal stories that are drawn out in a little more detail. The Ethiopian in chapter 8 of Acts, who was reading Isaiah 53 but didn't understand it. And in God's grace, Philip was nearby and could explain to him what it meant. He was baptized and went back to Ethiopia some 1,600 miles away, bringing the gospel with them. Of course, there's Saul of Tarsus in chapter 9. There's Cornelius in chapter 10, that Roman centurion, a full-blood Gentile who gets the gospel with his whole household. In chapter 13, on the island of Cyprus, the, the Roman proconsul of the island, the governor, believes on Jesus and is saved. In chapter 14, a crippled beggar in Lystra becomes a Christian. In Philippi, there are a few such stories. In chapter 16, there's Lydia, that high-end fashion designer and wealthy single woman who was saved. There's the formerly demon-possessed slave girl who was saved. And there's the Roman jailer who was wonderfully saved, first by his own murder, his own suicide, and then saved from his sin. Remember, the angels rejoice in heaven when one sinner repents. So each one of these stories is marvelous and wonderful and eye-opening. And In fact, together in the book of Acts, they, they make up a composite lesson of who is a Christian and who can be a Christian. There's a diversity of the people and the kinds of people. There are rich and there are poor. There are Jews and Gentiles. There are ones who live here and ones that live way over there. Some are educated, some are not. Some are powerful and some are socially weak. There are diversity in the circumstances in which someone might get saved. Not everyone gets saved in quite the same context or with the same delivery or, or, or with the same packaging of the same gospel truth. But there is the same gospel truth. There is one Savior, one gospel, one hope. There is one problem that that Savior and gospel addresses, sin. And there is one conversion story in the book of Acts that stands out above the others. Not that heaven rejoiced more that day than any other day necessarily. But when a conversion story is told to us three times in the book of Acts, at great detail, we should probably pay attention. It was recorded first in chapter 9, and then it's retold in chapter 22, and again in chapter 26. I'm referring, of course, to the conversion of a guy named Saul, also known as Paul. We saw his conversion in chapter 29. We've been seeing the effects of that conversion play out ever since as we've studied this book together. God's been working in and through Paul among the nations for the spread of the gospel. And today we come to chapter 21 and 22 of the book of Acts, where Paul is attacked, arrested, and then allowed to speak. He gives a defense. He takes the stand. And it's there that he gives testimony of what happened to him and what is most important in his story. To use John Newton's words, 
It's as if Paul says here, he saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I, I once was blind, but now I see. I said last week that the last one-fourth of the book of Acts makes up various scenes, almost like chains, uh, links in a chain, rather. You see, it's not easy to deal with one link or one scene all by itself since they're connected and they make up a whole. And so last week we saw at the end of chapter 21 something that we'll pick up and, and look at a little bit more closely this week before we move on to new material. And we'll do the same next week. This week we'll deal with three overlapping interrelated sections of chapters 21 and 22. There's the situation Paul's in, in chapter 21. There's the explanation that Paul provides at the beginning of chapter 22. And then briefly, we'll see the outcome for all involved at the end of chapter 22. Let's remind ourselves of the situation. What is the situation Paul finds himself in? Look at chapter 21, starting in verse 27, and let's read. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? We'll stop there for now. This is the situation. We could call it attack, arrest, and accusations. Let's start with the accusations facing Paul. Verse 28, they say he teaches everyone everywhere all the time against the people, against the law, and against the temple. Now, these same charges had been raised against Jesus and Stephen. And in both cases, those stuck, and they were executed. So these are no small matters. We saw last week, when it says he brings Greeks into the temple, that was no small matter. Between the outer court of the Gentiles and the temple proper were four and a half foot high barriers with signs evenly placed along the way warning Gentiles from entering in. They alternated between Latin and Greek so that no one would miss this warning. In fact, archaeologists have found such signs. One reads, no foreigner may enter. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for what follows, death. So that explains the quick reaction in the temple precinct when they get word that Paul may have brought a Gentile into the temple. Verse 30, at once the gates were shut. Or you want to see how serious the charge is? Just look at what they do to Paul. Paul is violently, mercilessly attacked by a swelling mob. The whole city is stirred up, verse 30. 
They ran at Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. They were seeking to kill him, verse 31. They were beating him, verse 32. Can you imagine? I mean, just the experience of it. Can you imagine? This would be absolutely terrifying. Never mind that it would be painful and that it was life-threatening. It's a riot, and Paul is at the center of it. Now, let us pause here for just a bit and learn from the negative example of this mob and its uproar, because this is a perfect storm. What are the ingredients in this perfect storm? Well, misunderstandings about Paul's teaching. Added to that, personal animosity against Paul. These are Jews from Ephesus, actually, who started this whole thing. They're down for Pentecost in Jerusalem. They're probably familiar with Paul's teaching up in where they live, and now they've brought it down, and they're stirring up the crowd of Jerusalem. They've got history with Paul. You mix in there old frustrations with Rome and growing prejudices against the Gentiles in the 50s A.D., along with new geopolitical religious tensions between Rome and Jews in these days. New uprisings, new would-be revolutions were popping up almost yearly in these times. In fact, that's what's being referred to down in verse 38 when, when the tribune asks Paul, are you not the Egyptian? who stirred up a revolt with 4,000 men? Josephus, the historian of the first century, uh, writes about this. So we know this happened. There was an Egyptian who said, I'm going to get a group of people together, and we're going to go to Jerusalem. The walls are going to fall down. We'll walk in, and I'll reign, and you'll reign with me. Well, they got to the walls, and hundreds of his men were killed by Rome, and that Egyptian fled. Add to that then misguided nationalism. And all this makes it easier to receive accusations that you've heard about someone that you don't know are true, but you assume so. Add to that a mob mentality where people are senselessly jumping in on a brouhaha. Add to that a willingness to do violence. Here's the perfect storm that Paul's in. We Christians don't do this stuff. Now, I know probably most of you have not actually participated in a riot. I know most of you, no, all of you, next week will probably not be involved in a riot. That's not the threat. But what are the heart things that lead to a, a riot? It's misunderstandings and personal animosity and frustrations and misplaced anger. We Christians ought always to be people of facts and truth and, and not easily provoked and not assuming motives and not assuming the worst in someone because they're different than us or on a different side. We can't be people who are partisan over principle. And yes, in case you're wondering, I am poking at American politics here and also the media. On both sides of the aisle, for that matter, not just the right, not just the left, I have a growing concern about many of us living in thoughtless echo chambers of our own Twitter feeds and our own Facebook pages of getting more comfortable with dismissing truth and demonizing human beings made in God's image. And if you're thinking right about now, yeah, Ryan, you tell them. Well, that just means that I was actually talking to you, okay? I wasn't actually addressing your ideological enemies. If you think this is for someone else, then it's probably for you. We all need to be on guard about this. We all need to think of the small things that essentially are riotous in their DNA. Back to Paul. The riot, the beatings, the, the commotion. 
leads mercifully to Paul's arrest. His arrest. Now, this was a common scene in these days in Jerusalem under Roman rule. Keeping Pax Romano, the peace of Rome, was serious business. And with occasional Jewish uprisings in Jerusalem, especially around festival days, well, those in charge were on high alert. And at the first sign of commotion or chaos or trouble or conflict, well, the battalion was released. Here, a cohort of 500 soldiers quickly arrives in the scene. Centurions, plural, each of them overseeing hundreds of soldiers. They all ran down. They ran into the eye of the storm, and there they find Paul, and they take him into custody. Now, this is bad news to be arrested by Rome, but it is good news if you were about to be killed. It is good news that Paul, by Rome, was actually rescued from the beatings and the murderous intentions of the Jews. Do you sense the irony there? It's interesting. In God's mercy and sovereignty, it was Rome that was the means for Paul's rescue from death. Luke intends to show us some irony that Paul, a Jew, is being rejected by Jews, but being protected by Romans. God's sovereignty has fingerprints all over the place here, right? Paul going to Jerusalem, that was God's plan. The Holy Spirit told Paul to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer there. And so suffering he did. God is sovereign in the suffering. And God is sovereign in that he didn't suffer more than he did. God was sovereign to protect his life. But don't you sense some of the tension in the way Luke words this stuff? That the Roman tribute who's in charge is far more sensible and measured and and after the truth than the riotous mob is. The tribute inquired about what was happening. Verse 34, he was trying to learn the facts. And by contrast, the crowd, they're like sharks in a feeding frenzy. The only discernible word that Luke records for us here amidst the chaos of the crowd is that all too too familiar phrase, away with him. That's what they say, verse 36. Just what they said about 27 years earlier in Jerusalem when Jesus was being tried. Away with him. But unlike Jesus, who barely spoke a word at his defense, Paul asks to speak. He's eager to explain not so much what has been misunderstood, not so much to clear his own name, but to communicate what is most central in who he is and what he's about and what he's doing and why he's there. So secondly, the explanation. Let's read it. It'll take us a little bit of time, but it will be good. Chapter 21, starting in verse 38, just glance there, we've already read it. Are you not the Egyptian that started a revolt? Paul replies. Verse 39, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, And then there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. 
Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? The Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the, the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Here's the explanation. I can give it three headings, commitment, conversion, and commission. Notice first how Paul approached the situation rather gently and gentlemanly. He asked the tribune, may I say something? He addressed the Jewish crowd, brothers and fathers. By the way, that's exactly how Stephen addressed the crowd before his execution in chapter 7. Paul spoke to them in Hebrew. It's all very, well, respectful, diplomatic perhaps even strategic. Of course, that's not the only goal. That's not the, the Trump all other things kind of goal. But it was a strategy and a, a way of the Christian life that we find elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus commended gentleness and meekness. And Peter, in his first epistle, talked about Christians giving a defense for the hope that lies within with gentleness and reverence. 1 Peter 3.15. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. And Paul calls it a defense. Notice that. An apologia. That's the Greek word where we get our words apologetics and apology. But don't think he's about to give an apology. He doesn't say he's sorry. No. Apologia could be a legal defense. And perhaps that's what's going on here because it's a bit of a legal context. Although, notice Paul addresses the Jews and not the Romans. It could be apologia in the sense of Peter's use of it. Defending the hope that is within. Pointing to Christ. Telling what we believe. Apologia could be used like sometimes we use it today in Christian circles where we talk about apologetics, where we're, we're trying to make a case, we're defending the faith, we're, we're maybe even trying to make a proof for something that we believe. Well, Paul could probably have each or all of these in mind as he addresses them. What an opportunity this is to address them. It was a riotous crowd bent on Paul's death, Roman intervention, well, divine intervention, led Paul to a pulpit, essentially on the steps, whereby he addresses his brothers and fathers in heritage, and they listen. When he began speaking in Hebrew, a hush fell upon the formerly riotous crowd. Amazing. And then Paul says who he is. He's a Jew. He's from Tarsus, no petty place. And he was raised in Jerusalem. Even more important, that's the epicenter of Judaism. He's showing his credentials and also his commitment. He was no ordinary Jew. He wasn't just a quintessential Jew. He was, he was Jewish with pedal to the metal. 
He was zealous for God, verse 3 says. Zealous in his education at the feet of Gamaliel, the Ivy League favorite professor of rabbinic Judaism. Paul was zealous for his Pharisaic tradition according to the strict manner of our fathers, as he says. He didn't just learn the religion, he practiced it as hard as anyone. He was top of his class. He, he had a golden resume, you could say. He, he was a, a rising star in Pharisaical Judaism, probably in his mid-20s at this point. And he was also zealous for Christian persecution. That's part of his zeal for God, so he thinks. You see, before Paul was a Christian, he was decidedly and violently against the way, the way of Christ, against the followers of Christ. He was binding and delivering to prison both men and women. We first learned about this back in chapter 7 of the book of Acts. After Stephen was stoned, we're told that the executioners laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So almost certainly, Saul was in charge of Stephen's stoning. And certainly by chapter 8, Paul is the point man on the persecution of the church of Christ. Saul was ravaging the church. Chapter 8, verse 3. Entering house after house, dragging men and women off to prison. And not just to prison, but prison, then trial, then hopefully execution. In chapter 9, verse 1, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. You get the impression that he's not just serious about this or committed to it, but he's angry. He's driven by a wickedness that he thinks is righteousness. You wonder how he could be so mistaken. Well, Saul saw himself as something like Phineas in Numbers 25. Back then it was a time when many of God's people had turned to, to Baal to worship another God, turning their back on the true and living God, and God had cursed the land because of it. And Phineas in holy wrath, grabs a spear and goes through the land and wipes out the idolaters. And the curse is removed. We get every impression from Numbers 25 that in that context, Phineas was holy and righteous and even courageous. Surely Paul sees this movement and the leader of it as blasphemous, not misguided, but blasphemous, worthy of death. As we've said so many times before, there is no middle ground with this Jesus. Either he is who he said he is, and then we better bow, or he is not who he said he is. He's a charlatan. He blasphemes God, and all his teaching and following him is not only useless, but harmful. On the other hand, if he is the Son of God, the Christ, and if he did come to address sin head on for good, to defeat Satan and sin and death, well then God has now delivered on his promise of a whole new creation, a whole new era, something new and something big, and then that changes everything. Removal of sinners geographically or in proximity, is no longer the answer if Messiah has come because Messiah cleanses sinners, because Messiah goes to the ends of the earth to make the whole world his own. But again, I say Saul didn't think that at first, and the cross was probably evidence A, no more evidence needed. Close the book. He can't be Messiah. He can't be the Christ or the Son of God. He was cursed. The cross proves he was cursed, and Paul can't see it any other way. He'll put it like this in Acts 26. Turn there, if you would. 
Here he'll tell the story again. And we'll look at it in due time soon enough. But, but just a few verses stand out capturing what I'm getting at. In verse 9 of chapter 26, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. So you can see here, he's writing both as... He's speaking both as what he was and what he was doing, and yet he's got a new perspective now in chapter 26 as he's speaking it. He didn't think he was making them blaspheme back then as he taught them or told them or demanded them to renounce Christ, but now he sees it as blaspheme. Nevertheless, it was raging fury against them, persecuting them even to the foreign cities. Now, Paul's point in recounting his past in these passages is to show that he wasn't expecting what would, what would come next. He wasn't looking for it. He didn't think this would ever happen. His conversion. He encounters the risen Christ. And that changed everything. He was on his way to persecute more Christians in Damascus. And there on the way, when the sun was at its brightest, a brighter light shone all around him and it spoke or rather he spoke Saul Saul why are you persecuting me Saul asked who are you Lord I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting now from here the dominoes should fall one after another Jesus then is alive and glorious alive gloriously alive this isn't someone who survived a crucifixion, but barely. This is the Lord. Everything he said about himself is true. He's demonstrating to Saul divine qualities, great light. That's what God does when he shows up. It's all over the Bible. Omniscience, that he knows Saul's been persecuting Christians, and that he has a solidarity with his followers. Saul. Here's the Lord say, why are you persecuting me? Not my people, me. Me and my people are one. To persecute the way is to persecute me. I'm the way. This was not some private experience that can be explained away as a hallucination. There are men with Saul, and they saw the light as well. Granted, they couldn't discern what the voice said, since it was specifically for, Paul, uh, for Saul. But they were with him. They saw the light. They were with him the whole time. Saul, now blinded by the light, needs to be escorted <clears throat> into Damascus. And in Damascus, another person is involved, which further verifies that this is no hallucination. Ananias, a believer in Damascus, well spoken of by all. In other words, not some famous storyteller who catches 45-foot fish. This is Ananias. He's reliable. He's steady. And he had already received a vision from the Lord about Saul coming to him and that Ananias would need to help him and, and heal him and then speak some words of commission to him. So several people are involved. You've got outside verification. It's not just Paul's group that had a thing, but you've got Ananias someplace else having a complimentary experience. So the resurrection changes everything. Saul's scales fell off his eyes, spiritually and physically. It's wonderful. The Saul will not only be stopped from killing fathers and mothers who love and follow Jesus. This Saul will not only be mercifully forgiven for murder and treachery. He'll be commissioned to represent Jesus to the world more than anyone ever has in human history. The resurrection changes everything. 
You ever seen the inside of a lock? Ever seen how a key really works? If you can't, just picture a skeleton key with all of its little notches sticking up. And you know if you don't put it in all the way, you can't turn it. Well, the resurrection was like that last notch on a key. There's no turning it. There's no opening the door. The cross doesn't mean anything except curse unless there's a resurrection. And Saul sees the risen Christ. The key is now in all the way. It turns. The door opens. Everything falls into place. Now, all of a sudden, Stephen's sermon, which Saul heard back in chapter 7, it makes sense. Now, all of a sudden, the cross isn't curse, it's victory and sacrifice. Things are clicking. And yes, Paul will need to be taught more. This isn't like he's now solved every mystery. But things are clicking. They're falling into place. The dominoes are falling. He's given a commission that's very Moses-like. In verses 14 and 15, Moses was told that he was going to represent God and he was going to tell people what he had seen and heard. And Paul is told what he has seen and heard and that he'll be a witness of what he's seen and heard. Now, by the way, there are some small differences between these three accounts of Saul's conversion. In chapter 9, 22, and 26, there are Some different details, but they're not inconsistent details. It's just either added or left out details. So in verse 17 of chapter 22, there's a trance or a vision that comes that wasn't mentioned before back in chapter 9. But but, but don't be alarmed. It's no surprise that Paul can add some new information. He experienced it firsthand. And so this further confirms that this is not a one-time experience, it's not a one-man experience, it's not even a one-group or one-place experience. It now affects Ananias and also Paul with another vision in Jerusalem. You see it there? Verses 19 and 20. Sorry, verse 18. Get out of Jerusalem quickly, the Lord said, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Paul dares reason with the Lord in verses 19 and 20, but but it's reasonable reasoning. He essentially says, Lord, you know how greatly I persecuted these people and how I was there approving of Stephen's death. In other words, surely they're going to know that I was the least likely person to become a Christian. So if I say that I saw the risen Christ, surely they'll go, oh, well, I mean, if you say so, then you must finally get it. It's not bad reasoning, but the Lord knows sinful hearts and he knows that rational thought doesn't always win. And so the Lord insists, they will not accept your testimony about me, verse 18, and go, verse 21, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that's what happened. From Paul's commission on in the rest of the book of Acts, generally speaking, Jews rejected Paul's gospel message of Christ. And generally speaking, Gentiles accepted it a whole lot more. So here's Paul back in Jerusalem, and in tow as he arrived are some new friends, Gentiles. They brought their money to care for the Jerusalem church in times of suffering. It's a testimony of what God promised that day to Ananias, or through Ananias, to Saul. You'll be a witness to the Gentiles. I'll send you far away. They will not accept your testimony about me. Here's the testimony. It's what Paul first heard and saw that day on the lips of Ananias when he said, verse 16, Be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. This is Paul's message. This is the gospel. Here it's worded in a bit of a shorthand way that may be confusing. You see, verse 16, it may sound to you like baptism washes away sins, But from elsewhere in the Bible, we know that's not true. People are forgiven and then are baptized. That's the more common order of the wording. So this just means that Christians become Christians by calling on the name of the Lord. 
In other words, it's simply through faith. It's simply through trust. It's, it's simply a, a prayer. It's asking. It's simply believing. And then once they're cleansed of their sins, there's this thing Jesus told them to do, to portray that to the world in the waters of baptism, to identify with Jesus' death and resurrection, to show the world that your sins have been cleansed and washed away. It's not that the baptism cleanses your sins. It's that the gospel cleanses. And we want to portray that and proclaim that as much and as clearly as we can. Here's what Paul understood according to Philippians 3. He didn't just understand that Christ was risen, and hence the Christ, but he also came to understand that the gospel must be received through faith and not by working for it. So in Philippians 3, he says, if anyone thinks they have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he lists all his examples of accomplishments. But whatever gain I had, I count those as loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, in fact, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So if you're not a Christian, this is the gospel. You call on the name of Jesus because he died on the cross for sins and was raised on the third day. And if you truly believe that, you truly call on him, you'll be saved, you'll be forgiven, he'll cancel your debt. But you can't rely on your goodness to get there. You, you can't work your way on up. You must come abandoning self-righteousness and clinging solely to Christ. So we always say the bad news is way worse than you thought. You have nothing to bring to the table. But the good news is far better than you could ever imagine. God will forgive all of your sins in Jesus if you simply believe that he is who he said he is, did what he says in his word that he did, and believe that it's your only hope, and you tell him so. That's the gospel. I pray you know that today. I pray you've come to believe that. I pray that perhaps before the day's out, if you've not yet come to believe, maybe today would. Maybe today would be a day of salvation for you. I pray it would. If you're not a Christian, if you're still a ways away, I wonder how you explain the curious case of Saul's conversion. There's no use wondering if he's a fi fictional character that Christians made up. You will not find a legitimate ancient scholar who thinks that Saul wasn't at one time the premier persecutor of Christians. No historian, secular or not, argues that Paul wasn't later on the premier ambassador for Christ. So how do you get from point A to point B? What's your explanation for this? The best that non-Christian secular scholars can posit is that either it was a hallucination on the Damascus Road or that Saul had actually been being slowly inoculated to the Christian teaching while he was killing Christians. And then one day he snapped. Do you find either of those very convincing? hallucinations with multiple people involved in different places? I don't think so. People willing to die for hallucinations? Yeah, there are some of those in history, but they're usually pretty easy to spot as crazy. Paul's not. He's a, he's a reasonable man. He's sensible. And yet he kept insisting that this encounter with the risen Christ changed everything. And he thought it was a pretty good argument, a defense an apologia, that the most unlikely candidate for Christianity became its best spokesman and ambassador. Now, if that just bounces off you this morning like it is nothing, I'm not surprised. That says nothing about you or my view of you, but of the human heart generally. I know I was once there. I've seen firsthand the gospel makes so much sense to the person who speaks it and so little sense to the person who hears it. 
And we read of things in the Bible like 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so they won't see. But I also know 2 Corinthians 4, 6. The God of this world who, who spoke creation into existence, he can show us the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. He can supernaturally reveal Christ to us. And that's how any of us have come to believe. Sadly, it wasn't so for these Jews this day who heard Paul. What's the outcome? We'll just read a couple of verses and move on. Chapter 22, verse 22. What's the outcome of all this? Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. The outcome is rejection, rescue, and rights. I was optimistic on Thursday when I came up with this outline, and we won't get to rescue or rights today. We'll talk about that next week, but we can at least see what comes of this as we work our way through the links of these chains or scenes. Notice there's no thoughtful engagement with what Paul said. There are no follow-up questions. There, there are no rebuttals. At mere mention of their rejection of Paul and Paul's mission to the Gentiles, they launched into senseless outrage and throwing dirt in the air to protest, and they once again want Paul dead. That's the only thing that will satisfy him. The human heart is that bent on itself and on sin unless God opens our eyes to see Christ in all his glory and light will just be blank and dark but if he opens your eyes to see you will see him today as glorious as God as gracious and merciful, as kind, as patient. Here's where we need 1 Timothy 1, where Paul tells us how we should use and view Paul's own testimony. Listen to it. He says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God saved Saul, not because he was looking for it, not because he was deserving of it, not because he meant well but was misguided or mistaught. God saved perhaps the worst sinner in this world. For God's glory... And for a lesson for anyone who would come after and wonder whether God could actually save them. I wonder, do you think you're too far from God for him to reach you and grab you? Do you think you've seen too much horrible things for him to show you Christ and for you to receive it? Oh, no. No, he is merciful and powerful. He showed this man this murderer, this one that we're not supposed to like because he killed our kind aggressively and violently and angrily in the name of God. But he was forgiven. He was reconciled to his Savior. He loved his Savior. He loved to talk about his Savior. He loved to represent his Savior. He loved to tell people that God's grace has no limits or bounds. No one is beyond the pale of God's grace. If you know someone that thinks they are, 
Or if you think someone might be, remind yourself that they're not in prey. As long as they have breath, they may receive, may see God's grace one day. Christian, be assured that this book is for real and this Christ is for real and he is risen. And if he's risen, then you just let the dominoes fall afresh again. Think of all the things that are true if Jesus is risen and living. It means every promise is true. It means he's coming again. It means he'll fix it all. It means he's got us. It means he'll do us good. It means he is watching over us. He is building his church. He is reigning on high. It looks like crazy nations and rulers are ruling this world, and hence things are scary. But Christ is on his throne, and he rules. We don't see it now, but it's true, and it will be visible and undeniable one day. If he reigns, then everything you've come to believe isn't, it isn't a crapshoot. It isn't a hope so. You know it to be true, and you can trust it. And therefore, you can share your story with others. That's what Paul did. He had a special story. Probably none of us have been blinded by light, and that's how we were converted. But we've all had the same basic ingredients. We were sinners going the wrong way in unbelief and rebellion, and God intervened. And he revealed himself. And he showed us Christ. And, and our minds changed. And we followed him. That's the gospel. I hope it's your experience. If it is, share that story with other Christians and also the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Ethiopian and Cornelius and the centurion and the crippled beggar in Lystra, in Lydia, in the Roman jailer, and hundreds of people in this room who have come to believe that Jesus is alive, and he died for their sins, and he's the Savior and Lord that the Bible tells us he is. We thank you. We, this morning, mourn unbelief. And we thank you for faith. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the stories and the instruction for Acts 22 and for Paul's comments in 1 Timothy 1. We thank you for the cross and resurrection. Lord, would you, would you press upon us how wonderful your plan is, how kind you've been, how amazing your grace is. And would you this morning, Lord, make us bold to represent you well in this world. We pray all this for your namesake, Lord Jesus. We pray this because you're the living one, because you're our Lord, because you revealed yourself to us. We thank you for it all. Help us now, Lord, as we sing of the cross and as we ponder what you've done, as we think about the power of the cross. Lord, would you give us faith, give us joy, increase our thankful hearts for your namesake. Amen.